So, we are in Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing on, so we'll be in verse 13 this morning. This is where we will take our text, Matthew 5, verse 13. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So we are, we are continuing our, our walk through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been here a while, several weeks now, going through the, the Beatitudes. Uh, this, Jesus is preaching his first full sermon, and he's laying out the way of the Christian. And in his concluding remarks in chapter 7... Jesus said that the way that leads to life is hard. He says the straight is the path, narrow is the gate. The way that leads to life is hard and few there are that find it. So we we can conclude because he said very plainly that the way is not easy. This is not an easy way. This is not, there's nothing nominal or just name only about this way. There is nothing half-hearted about following this way. You can't do this and be half-hearted about it. It's a whole thing. It's a whole life thing. It's a sold-out, live for Jesus, die to self, pouring out of yourselves, sacrificing for others, for their sakes, for the sakes of others, so that they might see and savor and love and be transformed and be moved by the same hope that that we see and savor and love and are transformed and moved by. We pour out for them so that they can see that hope that we have in in Christ. We have a rock-solid hope, a bedrock hope in Jesus. There's a future glory that awaits us that surpasses everything, anything this life has to offer. A future glory that is a reality that is more real than anything that we know. It surpasses wealth. It surpasses long life. It surpasses TV shows and books and fantasy and music and and concerts and fishing trips and mountain vistas. It's better than all of that. It's better than snow on Christmas or lemonade in the summer. It surpasses all of the best foods. There's nothing more decadent than the kingdom of God. There's nothing more precious than the kingdom of God. Nothing more delicious. Your word is sweeter than honey, even sweeter than the honeycomb, than the kingdom of God. It's better than than morning coffee and oatmeal. And that's pretty good. That's what I love, my morning. I don't, I don't miss morning coffee and oatmeal. That's just my thing. It's better than that. There's no experience on earth that can measure up. There's no thrill ride that can measure up. There's no adventure outdoors, no notoriety, no fame, not sex. Nothing can measure up to the glory that awaits us. All of it, everything, all the works of our hands, all the art and the music and architecture, all of the, the pursuits of our intellect and the products of those intellectual pursuits, all of our existence in this life is utterly dim. It's dull compared to the glory that awaits us as sons and daughters with Christ. The hope, the hope that we have is a promise that is secure 
and so true, so true that the reality of that hope far suppresses or surpasses the reality of our own current circumstances. Amen. Amen. That's why people can sing Amazing Grace when they're being tortured. This is this, all this, all this that we have. This, this is temporary. This life is temporary. The grass withers. The flower fades. We're but a whisper on the speck of eternity. All this is temporary. But what is more real and more sure is that eternal reward. Amen. Everything that we face today, everything that we have, our wealth, our rights, all of that stuff, everything that we have will pass away. But everything that we gain in Christ... Every, everything that we've been promised by God because His promises are yes and amen. Every reward that is promised to you because of Him will be forever. They can take everything from you. Your liberties, they can, take, they can even take your health away from you. They can deny you proper medical care. And they're doing that in parts of the world for people who profess Christ. We talked about it two weeks ago. You can't get medical attention because you won't deny Jesus. You won't swear fealty to the government or to some other deity. They can take even your health away, but what they can't take away is your joy. They cannot take away your joy because if it is rooted in the solid hope of Christ, it is rooted in something that is so solid, so indestructible, it can't be killed. Amen. Amen. So the Christian, I mean, that's a... That's a it's an amazing description of a life. And that's, that is a description of the Christian. The Christian is something altogether different. Amen. Something every, altogether different from the rest of the world. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, look, the new has come. That all old man is dead. You are a new thing. That's, that's remarkable language. You are a new creation. Something altogether different from what you used to be and from what everyone else is. You are altogether new. A new creature. We've become citizens of a, a different kingdom. A kingdom that's not of this world, Jesus says. He said, my kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. It's an eternal kingdom. Everything in th This whole world will pass away. My kingdom won't. The kingdom that we are citizens of, that will not pass away. So we are in the world. Certainly we have to live in the world, but we are not of the world. We're not to be of it. We're in it, but we're not of it. There's something radically different about the one who is a true disciple of Jesus. It's such a radical difference that we ought to be recognized because of him. We ought to be recognized. Because they, people ought to be able to encounter us and say, man, that guy is different. There is something different about that guy. Just, just by interacting with us. They ought to be able to look at our dealings with other people and they ought to be able to see how we handle adversity and conflict with other people and think, man, I've never seen such mercy. How merciful they are. How gracious they are. How, uh, how much humility they possess when dealing with others. Especially when they're, when they're being uh, spoken against. Especially when people are coming against them. 
They ought to have wide eyes and say, my goodness, I've never seen such graciousness. They ought to be able to see how we are sacrificial and generous towards our neighbors. And it should make their jaws drop. They should marvel at the way we do business. They should think, I I have never seen something so compassionate and friendly and generous in a business transaction. I've never seen it done this way. Who does business this way? How can you do business like this and still be successful? There's something different here. That's what they should see. We ought to be the first ones that extend an olive branch of peace each time and every time. We ought to be the ones to say, I want it to be well with you, and I want things to be well between us. They should see it, and they should know. They should see us and see how we rejoice. And our joy overflows all the more when we are persecuted and reviled and rejected because of Christ. They should see it and they should know. There's something altogether different here. And that's what Jesus means when he says you are the salt of the earth. This is who we are as Christians. Notice he didn't say that you should be the salt of the earth. This isn't a suggestion. It's a declarative statement. You are the salt of the earth. He didn't say you could be the salt. If you do all these things, you could be the salt of the earth. He didn't say they will perceive you as salt. He said a declarative once and for all statement, you are the salt of the earth. This is who we are as Christians. If we are connected to Jesus Christ, if we're rooted in Jesus Christ, alive in Jesus Christ, you you can't be something else and still be those things. You you can't still be connected and rooted and alive with Christ and not be salt. We need to understand this, that by virtue of being a disciple of Christ, you are the salt of the earth. There's, There's no such thing as a Christian who is not being salt. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not salty. We're all salty. Those who profess the name of Christ and they take on the mantle of Christian, but they're they're not salt, guess what? They're also not Christian. They're not believers. Not really, not in any way that ultimately matters. Because in in this very sermon, down in chapter 7, Jesus said that in in that day, in the day of judgment, many will say to him, Lord, Lord. They'll call him Lord, but he's going to look back at them and say, I didn't ever know you. Depart from me. I never knew you. And we'll we'll get to that more fully when we get to that part of the the Sermon on the Mount. But it's again, it's chapter 7. But I think at least in part, what Jesus means by that when he says, they'll say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name and cast out demons and perform these miracles? And he looks back at them and says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. At least in part, what he means is that you, you professed me with your mouth. You, you took my name as a title, as a mantle that you could wear. But you did not love me in your heart. You did not love my way, and you did not love my commandments. You treated me as something that you just tack on to the end of your name. But you didn't love me as Lord and Savior. So in, in John chapter 14, 15, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is what loving him looks like. 
So when he says, you are workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. He's saying, you never loved me. You never kept my commandments. I didn't know you because you never loved me. You rejected my ways. You rejected my commandments. You never loved me. Church, the way is hard that leads to life, and few there be that find it. We don't, we don't do anyone any favors when we don't talk about that. We don't talk about the, the difficult road of being a Christian. We sell them a bill of goods when we say, come to Christ and all your problems will be fixed. Amen. We, we do it in the prosperity gospel. We do it in the forgiveness only gospel. There's a, a cost. The, the gift of life is free. But it's not cheap. Amen. Amen. So Christians who are authentically new in Christ, people who, who authentic, they're authentic Christians. That means that they are salt. They are the salt of the earth. So what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? We, I guess we better figure that out. Obviously, Jesus is using figurative language here, right? Because you're not literally salt. It's like when he said, I am the bread of life. He's not literally bread, Right? We're not literally salt. I mean, we, can, we can look around and see that. So it's figurative language. I need to figure this out because Jesus is, uh, didn't finish his statement when he says you are the salt of the earth. He continues on and he says uh, a grave warning. He says if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And here's the really tough part. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So you are the salt of the earth, but if you are salt that has no flavor, what good are you? Salt that has no flavor is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So th this is a call to radical authenticity in Jesus Christ. We, we can't just pay lip service to serving Him. This is not about what we do. I mean, what we do. Faith without works is dead, so our faith is manifest in works, right? Amen. But our heart has got to be right. He, he railed against the Pharisees when he said, Woe to you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside is not clean. Amen. He said, Clean the inside so that the outside may be clean. Yes. We've got to be sold out inside and out. If the inside is good, the outside will manifest. We will overflow in works of goodness and righteousness and joy. And he mentions that in the next verses in chapter 5 when he says, You are the light of the world. Let your good works shine before men. We'll get to there next week. You are salt of the earth. This is, we have to be authentically, radically, authentically Christian. It is, I just, I don't know how to express it enough. We are altogether different from the world around us. And we've talked about this before. We talked about the gospel, the, the Great Commission. That the reason, one of the reasons that when we that, they, that we're not effective in our mission is that we too much look too much like them for them to want anything that we have. Amen. Amen. We need to look different. There's a couple of things that that salt that we know about salt that would serve us in understanding what Jesus is saying here. Number one, salt is the most abundant, one of the most abundant substances on the earth. In Joel chapter 2, uh, he gives a prophecy and he says that in the last days God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Y'all remember that? 
I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh in the last days. And then in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands on the balcony of the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And he preaches that amazing sermon in which 3,000 people were saved. And he says, this day, those words are being fulfilled in your sight. So these are the last days, and God has poured His Spirit out on all flesh. Those who preach that the last days have not come and that we're still waiting on that great outpouring, they haven't read their Scripture. Peter said it. This is it. This is what you are witnessing right now. For 2,000 years, we've been in the last age of earth, and God has poured out His Spirit in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh. All who would rec- It's not just for the Israelites anymore. It's for everybody who would come, everybody who would open their heart. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll just welcome me in, my Father and I will come in, and we will sup with you. We will make our home with you. This is for everybody. His Spirit has been poured out upon all flesh. Salt is the most abundant, one of the most abundant substances on the earth. The church has never been in a decline. Since the church was incepted, since it was created, it has never seen a day of decline. In in, in, in spite of all the opposition to it, they've tried to wipe it out. Satan has tried to burn Christians at the stake. He's tried to make everyone be afraid to be a Christian. I'm going to kill your family if you don't deny Christ. If you, you, you'll risk your life if you even own a Bible. He's tried it, but it doesn't work because the gospel is still preached. People are still transformed. Truth cannot be killed. The church has never seen a decline. It may look bleak right now. We may look at things and think, oh, they're not as good as they used to be. But I promise you, the church thrives in adversity. It's when things get too comfortable for us, that's when we start having problems. That's when we start letting things go and we start getting comfortable with all kinds of other uh, impurities and sin in our, in our homes and in our lives and, and most tragically in our churches. We have never seen a day of decline. In the midst of oppression and danger and sanctions and peril, lives are being changed more now than ever before. We have more missionaries in the field. The gospel is being preached in more languages than ever before. The church has never been in a decline. Salt is one of the most abundant substances on the earth. It may be harder and more costly for us to run the race in order to advance the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God won't slow down. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what I'm telling you in this, when I tell you that salt is one of the most abundant substances on earth, you can't get rid of it. Don't let the world get rid of it. Don't let them run it out of you. You're in good company. Number two, pure salt. Pure salt, that's the operative word, pure salt, never loses its flavor, ever. It's always salt. It will always and forever be salty. It never gets stale. There's not a freshness date on pure salt. It never goes bad. So then why, Jesus, would he say, if your salt loses its saltiness, how is that possible? It's impurities. So you understand, at the time in Palestine, they didn't, they didn't have refined salt like we do. They gathered all their salt from the Dead Sea, and it was laced with other minerals. So it wasn't pure salt. It was salt and other stuff. And so it was possible, depending on how they stored it, for the salt to leach out. So whatever they called salt wasn't salt anymore. So it wasn't salty anymore. It had no salt actually in it. And so this 
this stuff was good for nothing but to be thrown out. That was the experience that they had with salt. So they didn't have pure salt. They didn't have the means to refine it like we do. It was good for nothing. So the concept of salt is, is so simple, especially when looked at from, from those, those perspectives. Salt that is, get the uh, personal application here, salt that is mixed with other things, when we allow the impurities of the world in, it, it has a tendency to push the salt out. Amen. And we can lose our saltiness. So then what are we? Good for nothing but to be trampled. A Christian in name only is good for nothing. In fact, he's detrimental to the body of Christ. Because people look at him and say, he, he says, well, look at me, I'm a Christian, but I'm living like the rest of the world, like I have not met Christ, like I don't know Christ. I don't have any righteousness in me. I, I'm not merciful. I'm not pure in heart. I don't seek. I don't hunger and thirst after righteousness. I'm not, I'm not poor in spirit. I certainly don't rejoice when they mock me. That's when I get on Twitter and, and Facebook and let them have it for, for having different opinions than me. Certainly not peaceful about that. And they see that and say, oh, that's Christian. And it isn't. And we, we do a disservice. We diminish the body of Christ. That's why Paul tells us in, in Corinthians when he's talking about the sinner who has his mother-in-law. He's, he's, he's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And he says, you guys, this is, this is not even named among the Gentiles. How can you do this? And you rejoice in this. He's bragging about it. That's the problem because he's, it, it wouldn't have been such an issue for the church if this man were out of the church, if he were a, a Gentile, unbelieving heathen who didn't profess the name of Christ. But he was among the believers, and they welcomed him and fellowshiped with him and said, yes, brother, you're, and extended the hand of fellowship to this man who said, I'm Christian, yet I'm living like I'm not. And they made the name of Christ look like a reproach. We are the... Salt of the world and pure salt does not lose its flavor. We lose our flavor when we mix it with all this other stuff. Again, the concept of salt is super simple. Everyone that Jesus was speaking to could relate to it because they all used it. Everybody knows what salt is. Everybody knew what salt is. They used it. Um, and this is one of the genius things that, about Jesus that is uh, makes him a master teacher. He uses very simple concepts, very simple basic things to teach us great truths. There's almost no end to the applications that we can make here about salt in the Christian life and what it means for the Christian living in the world. But if we look at the Scripture, if we look at the context and the other passages that relate, there are a few things I think we need to, that we must definitely must derive. The statement, you are the salt of the earth, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not just a random statement. It, it, it immediately follows the Beatitudes, right? So we have been talking about the Beatitudes for several weeks now. That's the calling card of the Christian. If we were to, to put that on a business card, that would be what we would put on a card to say this is what a Christian is. Poor in spirit, mournful, meek, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, joyful in the midst of persecution. So we get that list of blessed things and all the promises that come with those blessed things. It gives us that list of those things and says these are all the promises you have. And then Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. 
almost comes out of nowhere. It's almost like, a, like an abrupt change of thought, but it's not. Saying this, this is salt. These things that we just talked about, this stuff, these blessed things and the promises that come with them, this is salt. And this is who you are. When you, when you attach yourself to me, when you become alive in me, alive in this vine, this is who salt is. These things, that's what the world needs to see. This is what seasons the world. If you're not these things, then you're not salt. Or as Jesus puts it, you have lost your saltiness. Amen. Salt is used for a lot. It's used to, for, to season food. It's used to preserve food. It's used in cleansing. It's used to purify. It was used in, in the, the sacrifices in the Old Testament. They had to season their sacrifices with salt. There's a reason that he chose salt. You know, you know, you, you know, some of you are more sensitive than others. I, I'm a bit of a saltaholic, so I need more salt to know that my food's been salted. But some of you know when salt's been added to your food. Amen. You know it. It's very distinct. You can't, you can't, you can't fake it. You can't fake salt. Amen. I mean, they've tried to come up with all of our, our knowledge of chemistry and all the chemical knowledge that we have and compounds. They've tried to come up with a way to make a fake salt. No salt, salt substitute. But anyone that says that that stuff tastes just like salt, they have been so far removed from what salt really tastes like, they don't know what salt tastes like anymore. And that's what we get here. You can't fake it. And if you try to fake it and you say, oh, that's the legit thing, there's no way. You've been so far removed from the legit thing, you couldn't recognize it anymore. And we see that all over the place. There's no substitute for real salt. There's no substitute for a real, authentic Christian in this world. And it bears noticing that when he says, you are the salt of the earth, it comes immediately after verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. That is the immediate context of Jesus' statement about you are the salt of the earth. Rejoice and be glad when they persecute you. Rejoice in it. Be glad in it. Let your joy overflow. You are the salt of the earth. What is more distinct in all the world than someone who has joy in the middle of their trials? Real joy. I'm not talking about faking it till you make it. Real, indestructible joy. Solid, serious joy that cannot be shaken because it is rooted in the unshakable reality of the promises of God, which are yes and amen. That's really different. That's really salty. From a thematic approach, just looking at the theme of salt as a metaphor for our place in the world, we are called to be different from the rest, distinctly, unmistakably Christ followers. And the question then is, how unmistakable is our life in Christ? How distinct, how salty are you to the world around you? You know, sometimes salt is abrasive. Sometimes it rubs people the wrong way. You, they will be offended in you because of Christ. That's why you will be persecuted and reviled because of Christ. 
Are you marked by those things? Merciful, pure heart, peacemaking, meek, and so on. Do, do others see you? Do they see you joyful? Do they see a joy in you that can't be destroyed? Do they see a hope in you that can't be shaken? Jesus makes a similar statement about us being the salt of the earth in Luke chapter 14. If we look at Luke 14, beginning in verse 25, I'm going to read about 10 verses here, so it's quite a bit. Just bear with me. He's talking, and he's, the great crowds have accompanied him. He turns to the side, and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 28. For which of you, now here comes an explanation of what he just said. If you don't hate the rest of the world, hate your own life, bear your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. For, because, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build was not able to finish. They look at you in your profession of Christ and say, Ha, 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 ha. I know you weren't going to make it when they see you fall back into the ways that you, you lived. I thought Christians were supposed to be different. You're no different. Or what king, verse 31, going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to send with 10,000 to meet him who comes at him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks him for terms of peace. We're not going to go into a battle. We, we don't think we can win. So therefore, verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if it has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If no, it is of no use, either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is an odd transition, isn't it? Anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but salt that has no taste is good for nothing. It's an odd transition. Jesus just commended us to count the cost of following him. Verses 26, 27, he tells us that cost is great for following him. You've got to love me more than you love your family, even your own life. That's verse 26. In verse 27, you have to bear your own cross. The cross is an instrument of death, church. Amen. Amen. At best, it's a sacrificial altar. When, when we're told that we have to bear our own cross to follow Christ, we're told that we must die to our flesh, die to our sin, die to ourselves. But to what end? To what end is all this, is all this dying? We are following Christ in the cross bearing, are we not? He said, take up your cross, bear your cross, and follow me. We're following Him in our cross bearing. So many people have over-personalized the cross and the bearing of the cross. And they've hyper-emphasized the personal nature of crucifying the flesh. And we reduce following Christ down to personal moralism. i got to be a good person. Don't be selfish. Love others. But they miss the point of why. Oh, I want to gain the kingdom. Don't get me wrong. That is a righteous desire. I need to gain. The, I don't want to miss the kingdom of God. What a treasure it is. But we are to bear our cross to follow Christ. We are salt to the world. Amen. 
Christ came to save people out of the world, out of their judgment to sin, out of their death in transgression. He went to the cross for the joy that was on the other side. He went to the cross despising the shame of the cross. We don't have to like it, but there's joy on the other side of it. Death on the cross makes no sense without satisfying and testifying to that glory. Bonhoeffer said that when Christ calls a man to follow him, he calls him to die. We must take up our cross, which means living for the good of others, so that they might know the same hope in Christ that we know. It's not all about me. Dying for their sakes. Showing them the glory of Christ on the cross. Why do you think he said rejoice when they persecute you? When Jesus hung on the cross, he prayed for the people who hung him there. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They don't realize what they're doing. Church, that's salt. That is distinctly different. So different that the centurion who watched him said, Surely this is the Christ. By the testimony he gave in the middle of his persecution and death, surely this guy's different. Will they say that about you? And do they say it about me? Who builds a tower? Verse 28, 32, without first making sure that he has what he needs to finish it. See, when Christ was on the cross, the centurion said, surely this is the Christ. From 2,000 years away, we still look back at that moment and we say, how great is our God. Amen. Amen. We have to count the cost. Make sure we have what we need to finish this race. To do that, we have to be sold out in Christ. There's no room for extra Stuff. There's no room to have divided affections. Who goes to battle without first making sure he can win? Count the cost. Amen. You can't have anything above me, Jesus says. You have to be pure salt. Not family, not life. Pure salt. So many people, they want a little Jesus and a whole lot of the world. Or they want a little world and a little Jesus. They think if they can just mix the two, they can have my cake and eat it too. And Christ says, no, you can't do that. That's not how this works because you're salt that loses its flavor. They wear Jesus as a badge and they talk Christian talk. They might come to church, but that's about it. There's no such thing as coasting through Christianity. This is not a button that we flip on and then we just coast the rest of our lives. I'm not talking works-based religion here. I'm talking a, 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 an intentional faith. He says we are to be cunning as serpents, and, and cunning as serpents, that's what he says. We need to have wisdom in the ways of the world so that, so that we don't fall prey to them. Jesus would say to you, if that's you, if, if you were salt with no flavor, and Jesus would call you back to himself. He would say, I, I need you to put your eyes back on me. I need you to put your cares back on me. I need you to follow me with your whole heart. The more you divide your affections, the less salty you become. You cannot love God and the world. And when you try, and so many people try, that's when they become salt that has no flavor. Mark 9, Jesus puts it another way in verses 42 through 50. 
He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if he had a great millstone hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire uh, is not quenched. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will, it make, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. There it is again. Salt is good. But if it's not salty anymore, it's almost like it comes out of nowhere. Almost. But it's not. It's intentional. There's a reason that he says this. And then there's this almost disconnected statement about salt. Jesus says, you've got to be so different. Your love for me has to be so much that you protect others in their walk for me, in their walk with me. You will not allow another to be offended in me. You won't offend another, one of these little children in me, and cause them to sin because you love me that much. We need to be different. Make sure that you are at peace with them. Make sure that you encourage them and support them and and strengthen them as they seek me. He gives further examples. You need to love me so much that your own, if your own hand causes you to sin or if your own hand causes someone else to sin, if, if the works of your hand are a stumbling block for someone else, you would rather cut your hand off than have that happen. You'd rather miss your hand than miss the kingdom of God. You need to love me so much now, he's, again, he's using very basic terms, very basic uh, uh, analogies to give us very simple truths. He doesn't mean literally cut your hand off. Amen. That's figurative speech. But, I mean, look at it. Jesus, look, our eyes, our hands, our, our feet, <laughs> would you say they're precious to us? I mean, no one willingly severs their hands and feet. No one willingly plucks out their eye. Not without great reward, not without a great payoff, not without great reason. The payoff would have to be huge for someone to cut off their hand or their foot, much more to pluck out their own eye. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. Have to be a huge payoff. And and this is the point Jesus is making. This, This thing, the kingdom of God, This thing that you have, the promise that you have in the kingdom of God, being connected to Jesus, living in, for, and by Jesus, that is so much more treasure than anything else. Even your own limbs, if they would cause you to miss it. Even your own eye, if they would cause you to miss it. When you see Christ as that precious, when you are willing to give anything to follow him, that no sin is worth it, even if it means losing your own limbs or plucking out your own eye, even if it means losing your own life, like what he said back in Luke, you, you love me more than you love your own life, even if it means that, and your own family, if your love for them has to look like hatred when it's compared to your love for me, that's salty. That's altogether different. And that's how it's manifest in the the Beatitudes, what we just came through. We just spent, what, 12, 13 weeks on? The gospel is only ever, let me 
Here's the thing. The gospel is only ever about me when I don't know him. It is only about me to the extent that I am an unbeliever who must first be drawn to him. Once my eyes have been opened and my soul has been made alive in Christ, all that changes. For the Christian, for the believer, the gospel of Jesus Christ is first Christ-centered and others-oriented. There's a whole lot less me in there. So I, I pray then that as I'm going to let you go here in just a second, that, that we see the necessity for our authenticity in Christ. I mean, every part of our life. We can't just, we can't play this. This is not games. Amen. Amen. This is very, I take this very seriously. Yes. And we should all, because life and death is on the line, not just here, but eternally. Amen. Not just for us, but for everyone that we know. We can't be nominal Christians who just pay lip service but don't follow his commandments or cherish his ways. We cannot be salt without any flavor because if we are, we're good for nothing. We're good for nothing. I don't want to be a good for nothing Christian. Lord, make my life count. Make it count. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name and we love you. And I thank you for your word. I thank you for admonishing us to to keep you center, to keep you in focus. I thank you for giving us a a way, Lord, a, a description, Father, for what it looks like to be authentically in you. God, help us to take it to heart. Help us to live it. Convict us when we're not doing it, Lord, and help us receive that conviction with joy because we know you're still working on us to make us what you want us to be. Father, send us out from here ready to serve, ready to love. Bring us back safely at the appointed time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.